You're listening to Right Between the Eyes, the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival podcast, where each episode we sit down with an outstanding festival guest to talk about their life, their work, the deepest, darkest secrets they'd intended to take to the grave. It's all on the table. You'll also hear a special musical feature from one of the region's most exciting performers. And if that wasn't enough, we cap things off with an author reading from yet another standout festival guest. It's a cavalcade of words for your ears, all on Right Between the Eyes. For our second episode, you're in for a treat. The 2020 festival was very excited to announce Rhoda Roberts as one of our special guests. And while fate had different plans for the year, we're just as excited to welcome her onto the podcast. Rhoda is a real powerhouse of inspiration. She's been one of the most prominent voices in Indigenous art and culture and continues to celebrate Australian art in all its many forms. We have a wide-ranging conversation, from memories of crafting the classic play Radiance alongside Louis Nara, to her reflections of the Dreaming Festival. We talk of recent accusations of institutionalised racism at NIDA, and why Rhoda feels the time is right to evolve the practice of welcome to country that she herself introduced back in the 1990s. Also on the show, we have an amazing, exclusive reading from Deborah Adelaide, who performs an extract from her short story, Carry Your Heart. And to tie it all together, you'll also be hearing music from local band Sage. But first, sit back and relax, as we welcome the one and only Rhoda Roberts. Uh, and today I'm very excited uh, to be able to to sit down and chat with Rhoda Roberts, who who is quite a, a busy lady. So I do appreciate you taking the time to chat to us, Rhoda. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great chatting to you, Adam. Uh, I mean, it, it would have been lovely to have to have actually seen you on stage in the flesh, but uh, it wasn't quite to be this year with the festival. But it's it's wonderful to talk uh, anyhow. But I know for for most people, all of these pandemic times. We've seen life, you know, slow to a bit of a crawl or people might have a lot more free time on their hands. I kind of get the impression that you may have been keeping as busy as ever. So what was the shape of your last three months? Well, it's as you say, it's been very interesting and there's been some highs and lows. Um, because I work as a freelancer and I think this affects a lot of the creative industries, you know, the work was either postponed or cancelled and so a lot of the income went but I'm very fortunate that I also work part-time at the Sydney Opera House. Quite frankly, we have been so busy. In fact, I didn't expect to be so busy with so much work but we've been um, in a very fortunate position where we've been able to continue employment of our artists and, and performers through our digital online technology and bringing concerts and talks and all various sorts of things onto that platform. So for me, that's been a wonderful thing that those artists that perhaps had lost a lot of gigs were able to get one or two through us at the Opera House. So, yeah, Mm. it's um, putting a different creative hat on, I think. (laughs) I've enjoyed seeing a, a lot of places around the world have uh, especially theatre companies have been bringing their programs online, which I think, I mean, it's it's somewhat unfortunate because I think theatre is just such a, a vibrant thing when you do see it in the flesh. But I suppose it also 
opens it up to a wider audience or people who might not have the opportunity to travel to see a theatre, do you think that from the from the ashes of the pandemic, we might see stronger online presences and see artists who are becoming a bit more online savvy and their online presence is that much stronger? Oh, absolutely. I think that things have changed enormously. And as you say, there is this online technology right around the world. And we're seeing things that we might not necessarily have seen or had the opportunity or indeed the money to go Mm. and see some of the productions. So I think the accessibility has been extraordinary. I know for us, we really want to focus a lot on our musicians as well, because they're the ones that do live a livelihood from gig to gig, so to speak. And what astounded me was the international viewing. So we had a, a group a couple of weekends ago with Julian Belbashir, who's a Berber man, which are the first peoples of Morocco. And we were very fortunate that a number of African musicians who had come to Australia in March for Wome Adelaide, when they'd finished their gig, literally the shutdown had occurred. So they had to remain in Australia. And so we were able to get these gentlemen into uh, the Opera House, into the Joan Sutherland Theatre where we've been filming the concerts. But surprisingly, the King of Morocco tuned in to this show (laughs) and because it was such a mix of African musicians who possibly wouldn't have performed in a concert prior because of the costs and all those sorts of things, brought this really eclectic music from Mali and Morocco and West Africa and um, he was so blown away by the collaboration and combination of the instruments that he's actually booked the, for next year to go there and perform at one of their festivals. How oh, splendid. And the King of Morocco, such such a high-calibre audience. <laughs> Amazing. So there's been great opportunities, but as you say, there's nothing like stepping into a theatre or indeed to a festival where there's that atmosphere gathering and mm. you're taken away on another journey with, you know, whatever's on show. And I think that will come back Maybe it will take longer than some of the other events we're seeing that are opening up. But I also think that um, I really applaud the creative industries. Uh, just incredible how people are so adaptable. I am very fortunate that I'm on the board of NORPA, the Northern Rivers Performing Arts, and, you know, looking at what can we bring back in the near future taking into account the viability with social distancing. Often theatre productions are so costly. If you don't have a full theatre, it's it's certainly not viable for the organisations. But here are all these amazing creatives who are thinking outside the box and going, well, let's look at things that happen outdoors and let's take people on theatre experiences where you're walking from scene to scene or you're around the building or, you know, all sorts of things. So I think it's actually going to change people's thinking of what theatre is and where it can go. Mm. Well, I mean, you look back through certain difficult periods of history and often innovations in art can can come out of such trying circumstances. So who knows? We may well see... Uh, a resurgence of uh, new you know, theatrical and musical innovations there. I know that there are a lot of uh, a lot of events that were postponed and festivals that 
are slowly starting to cobble themselves together again. But I know with, with our festival, one of the, the highlights that I was quite looking forward to, wow, one of the planned highlights now, I suppose, was going to be seeing you uh, in conversation with Louis Naurer, given you both had this, this great acclaim that you sort of found together with Radiance. And at the risk of, of waxing a little nostalgic, I was struck by this story of how you all developed the play over weekly dinner dates. And I love that image of this group of artists all sitting around and seeing, I mean, what would become a, a classic slowly coming to life. So what do you recall of those, of those dinners, how it all coalesced and came to be? It certainly was an extraordinary time. And um, I was very fortunate to be working with um, Lydia Miller, who now is an executive at the Australia Council for the Arts. But we were running a theatre company and we both would sit there and we were also performing at the same time. And we'd often get roles where, you know, we were the prostitute, the drunk, the mission girl. The, and we wanted to show people that we could be actors and go through all gamuts of emotion and and be great. And so we started looking at stories. And at the time, there wasn't that much around that came from that, I guess, our lens of how we saw ourselves as women. And so we started chatting. Lydia got all her money together and we pooled our money and we looked at who was a writer that we could commission and the brief we had was we wanted a play written about three women who returned to their mother's funeral, but they hadn't seen each other for 10 years. And I guess it was, you know, we were talking about dysfunctional families and, you know, where you sit as the middle child, the elder child or the baby of the family. And at the time, David Williamson and David Williams and Louis Nara were prolific, I guess, across the theatre industry in Sydney with their writing. And so we tossed and turned about who we would approach. And so we approached Louis and said, would you consider writing this play? And, you know, this is what we want. And at the time, um, Justine Saunders was also the late Justine Saunders, an incredible pioneer in mm. Aboriginal theatre. Uh, was also working with us at the Aboriginal National Theatre Trust and uh, she was also Louis Nowra's partner, so just seemed the right thing to do. <laughs> and um, and so, yes, it was the days I, – I don't even think mobile phones were around. I do remember Louis would bring this dictaphone and he'd sit it on the table and we literally did all those restaurants – there were so many of them back in that period of time in the late 80s, early 90s, up Glee Point Road. And then after a while we went, oh, actually, we just kept talking and we wouldn't, you know, they'd be coming back asking us to order and we'd be caught up in this conversation. And so, and we'd be talking about all the characters and stories. And, and so then we started to um, have dinner parties at our houses. Uh, mainly Lydia, actually, she's a really good cook. So <laughs> we we started doing that, and the end result was, of course, Louis had taken the transcripts of what we had talked about on that dictaphone and moulded these characters, and Radiance was born. And initially we had 
um, Kylie Belling, who was and still is an extraordinary actress and I guess very much a pioneer in a way as well. She was the first Aboriginal to kiss a white man on screen, which was then banned in a television uh, soapy called The Flying Doctors. Mm. Um, and then the second series, Lydia actually was in um, the second series. And so we initially had myself, Lydia, and, and Kylie uh, doing it. But, of course, Kylie got really busy and couldn't do when we actually got the play to get produced through Belvoir Street. So um, we looked around and thought, who is the next actress that could do this? And Rachel Mazza had just literally just graduated from WAPA. And so we rang her, So, and she was over the moon, of course, and that was her first professional theatre production. What a, what a thing to move into. Did it surprise you seeing the, Louis' final work after all of these meetings and all of these collaborations to actually see something concrete and tangible at the end of it? It was amazing, and, and, and as I say, the transcripts he had, the characters were there, the voices were there, so they were very much through our lens as women of what we wanted to discuss about this mother and, you know, looking at those periods of time where, you know, if a young woman was pregnant, the man was never blamed. It was always the woman was, you know, considered loose. And so we wanted to bring in some of those more, uh, you know, issues that affect all women and make it quite broad but and and the only, and we did give him a stipulation that the word aboriginal was not to be mentioned because we had this vision that we could actually do radiance with three aboriginal women and then three lebanese women could do it or three asian women could do it or because it was literally about sisterhood and 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 mothering and so forth and so anyone could do it because we were very aware in those days of the lack of any sort of representation uh, of diversity on our um stages because mm. you've been a, a preeminent voice in indigenous theater and arts for for decades now uh and have have really been championing seeing strong roles for Indigenous performers that aren't just, as you say, oh, this is going to be a prostitute character or we need a tracker or something, but instead having roles that have a substance and strength to it. And I was seeing just recently that NIDA has found itself with this open letter from students and staff uh, as part of the, the NIDA alumni for Black Lives Matter talking about institutionalised racism within the school. Which I I found surprising, given that just that NIDA's been kind of at the forefront of schools of performance for so long now. Were you surprised to see an institution that does have such a long stature and reputation still struggling with certain behaviours? Look, I think um, when you look at systemic behaviour and the fact that, I guess, the truth of history, uh, there hasn't been a lot of truth-telling in in. Perhaps things have shifted in the last decade, but I would suggest that most institutions have this systemic behaviour, not so often deliberate, but they just have these assumptions that Aboriginal people could not possibly produce something or write something or that we need to be helped along. And I think that 
those uh, a little bit outdated. Um, you know, when you talk about NIDA, when you consider that in their first lots of graduations, I mean, the late Vivian Walker, Ujuru Nunakul's second son, and Justine Saunders were alumni of NIDA. And I know during the 90s, they actually had quite a number of Aboriginal performers, directors, people doing all their various courses coming out and graduating. And I think we've seen that shift now in the theatre with people who have what I sort of term craft. I mean, I don't think I've done that much in theatre. I think there's been extraordinary leaps in the last couple of decades when I do look at the number of Aboriginal theatre companies, like we did have Aboriginal National Theatre Trust and then, you know, we saw the setup of Ilbidgery. Of course, we came out from the legacy of the Black Theatre days and worked with Brian Siren and all those um, writers that were involved in that with Ant and then to see Ilbidgery, Coembatajara, Yirriyakan, you know, there's numerous theatre companies and independent theatre makers across the country and if you look at some of the incredible writing now with people such as Nakia Louie and, mm. um, uh, you know, having Shari Sevens at the Sydney Theatre Company, I think there's a major shift. And, you know, Wesley, of course, with working with Queensland Theatre Company before he became Sydney Festival. So there's been so many people involved in theatre making and, uh, and indeed writers that we're seeing this incredible shift. Uh, there's a plethora of writing now that three decades ago wasn't – it was there, but it wasn't getting the voice as much. And I think that that's been the shift. Mm. I think most theatre companies do have some form of Aboriginal production. But again, I think the Aboriginal voice is often saying there is a systemic institutionalised behaviour mm. where why are there not more Aboriginal directors just directing Australian work? Why are there, you know, more producers and artistic directors and, you know, in levels of decision-making? Mm. How many Aboriginal tutors do they have at NIDA? So it's not just about ticking the box and having numbers. I think we have to look broadly at where the decision-making is occurring and the budget as well. I think that to, to touch on this a little bit more, you, you've talked to this a little already, but it just put me in mind of I want to say perhaps 11 or 12 years ago now, I went to my first Woodford Folk Festival and one of the highlights up there was seeing The Dreaming which was a, a festival that you pioneered in Sydney that then moved up there. Uh, yes, we um, ran the – I started the Dreaming Festival back in the early 90s and we actually had it in Sydney for 10 years and then what we realised was people wanted that gathering, that engagement, that experience, the one-on-one, -on -one, and we wanted to have it as a camping experience. We just knew that it would – take off. But unfortunately, there was no areas in Sydney at the time that New South Wales events would um, support having a, an area that was a camping as well as a festival. Mm. So Bill Horrocks, who 
um, the CEO of Woodford, had come to the Dreaming several times, and every year he'd say, oh, you should bring this up. And we go, why would we want to take it to Queensland? <laughs> and then, of course, the opportunity arose where we went, actually, we really do want this experience of camping and what a better you know woodford is such a beautiful site mm. and so we relocated the dreaming um to woodford in 2004 and i think in our first year there we had 10,000 tickets sold and i think it was because we had such a loyal audience from sydney that had sort of grown up with this festival and then you know, we're happy to travel to Queensland. And, of course, it just grew and internationally it grew. And it was such I'm, – I'm so proud of the dreaming. And I guess I'm very humbled that I can't tell you the number of musicians and artists and theatre. And I think that was its point of difference was we had Black Dramatics, which was a, mm-hmm. a theatre venue, a 700-seater theatre venue in the bush. And again, we were getting audiences who'd never been to theatre, and we would put uh, about six to eight shows on per day. It was extraordinary. Every time you walked in there, there was a new set, and it was just an amazing experience. And the number of artists who mentioned that they cut their teeth at the Dreaming is incredibly fulfilling. Mm, I have some wonderful memories of seeing performances at the Dreaming that were just just exceptional, and. I think a, I mean, you see a great many public events now that will that will start things, you know, festivals and the like that will begin with a, a welcome to country, which I think is just a, a, a strong gesture and intention, and it it gives a bit of cultural and historical insight to people who might be there. But I, I have to admit my my ignorance here. Until recently, I truly had no idea how strong some of the anti-welcome-to-country sentiment is out there. Like I was genuinely surprised by what seems to be predominantly white Australian anger, which seems to mostly be expressed by, I don't need a welcome to my own country. And, I mean, this, I mean, this absolutely shows the the ignorance my my privilege has afforded me. But how often do you find yourself faced with those kind of attitudes? And how do you begin to have conversations with people who have such venomous attitudes to begin with? Yeah, it can be astounding, can't it? But I think it's how you frame things. We actually, I actually coined the term "Welcome to Country" back in the eighties when we were running our theatre company, and we decided that it would be because we always practiced it in Aboriginal events and stuff. Why, why didn't we open it up broadly? And so we contacted quite a number of, um, you know, galleries and theatres and so forth in Sydney, and and started working that way. Going, would you consider a Welcome to Country? And in the 90s, I was actually, we were able to employ 21 people from the clan groups of Sydney. We gave them a uniform and put them through media training. And they, on those specific areas, their country into welcomes. And there has been resistance, and surprisingly, from a, local, a lot of local councils refusing to fly the flag on certain national days or suggesting why they would need a welcome to country. And I reviewed this about five 
odd years ago when I was working on some events going, you know, it has become a bit tokenistic and you often hear people say, oh, yeah, and we acknowledge the elders of the past, present and future. Well, that really doesn't say anything. Mm. So I thought, well, we need to have a deeper connection of why we do this. So I've now started doing what I call calling country. It sort of depends on where the location of the project is, but about five years ago with Sydney New Year's Eve, I've been doing that for a number of years, we did a calling country. And so basically as sovereign people, you would announce yourself as you were walking across borders and and call. You'd be travelling a song line, you'd be doing this. Of course, when you reach that new country, you would call out and they would respond and welcome you in, invite you in, like you would knock on someone's front door and say hi. And I think it's just such a lovely thing, that call and respond. Hmm. It will make change because it's not being ethical. It's actually just honouring protocol and it's revitalising language. And then, of course, you step into whatever that ceremony is performed in that area, whether it's a sweat ceremony, whether it's a smoking, a cleansing, whatever it is for those communities. And I think that connection and, and the closeness, but also one of the big things about protocol and calling country is you always gift you gift people, whether it's with a song or whether it's with an, uh, uh, an implement such as a message stick. And so we've been sort of trying to, in a lot of the events I've done of late, like uh, the Invictus Games and things like that, and the military tattoo, we've ensured that we've had the gifting as part of the welcome. And that's amazing. People get blown away because they're getting presented a carving of a message stick or a number seven, which is a big boomerang, um, to take home with them. And it's that, it's a bit like breaking bread. You give something, people feel very welcomed. And I think for Australians who go, why should I be welcomed onto this country? We have to find other ways of them feeling embraced because they're feeling, you know, what is their culture? What is their language? What is their history? What are their classics? Our dance and song are our classics that are, have been with us since time immemorial. That's something that gives us such incredible pride. But I think there's a lot of Australians who are very lost. They don't have that sense of belonging. So it's finding ways that you can have gatherings that incorporates what they're feeling as well, I guess. And I think it's just always being really polite, always welcoming, always opening up your arms because people have a fear, God knows why. And But I just think when you transfer some of that, perhaps it can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And very, very well put there, Rhoda. Uh, we, we have, sadly, we don't have a, a huge amount of, of time with you and we, we, we can't even look forward to seeing you at the next panel a little bit later in the day. But I, I just wanted to, to close with, I read a comment that you made a few years ago in The Australian about your father, Frank Roberts Jr., who was a, a very seminal Aboriginal activist and pastor, uh, where you mentioned that the, the greatest wisdom that he passed on to you was that you're, you're here for a reason and everything you do has to be about the service of your people. And 
I mean, I can't imagine anyone looking at, at your life and failing to see that wisdom kind of echoed across your career. But I wonder if you if you hold that to be true of everybody, that we all have some obligation to share our strengths or to improve a, a common good. I do. You know, it's funny. I Many, many years ago... It, it, when I was very young and my father would take me to remote communities and things like that, just seeing their perspective of royalty, how they regarded the queen, and it would be, well, she's the boss lady of that country, and they understood the monarchy because of their service to the people as such. And I and I guess when Dad would say that, we would go, oh, yeah. But I see what he was saying is you – we are very fortunate that we have this inherited birthright and we must ensure that if we can provide something to humanity, then that's what we're here for. But I think now more so than any other time, just witnessing what's occurring around the globe, the conversations that are occurring because of COVID and, you know, situations that have occurred with um the justice system and police and everywhere in every country people question and that's a good thing to question and I think more and more people are getting in touch with what is really relevant in today's society and it, it you know it basically comes down to survival but I just watching some of the generosity and kindness that has occurred you know, with homeless people during COVID, with people setting up soup kitchens, little tiny things. That's what service to people is. And, and I think we've a greater nation because of it. And we're questioning our politicians. We're questioning our way of life. And we're reviewing it and looking at a better, more fulfilled, possibly deeper and reflective as peoples, human beings. And that's got to be a good thing. You know, you're always going to have someone who says no or you're always going to have someone who doesn't agree with you and that's okay too. Rhoda Roberts, it was a, a genuine pleasure getting the chance to have a, a bit of a chat with you. Uh, we, we do thank you very much for your time and our sincere hopes that we'll be able to see you and welcome you up here to Bellingen again in the not too distant future. I would have loved to have been down there on Gumbanga lands and hopefully very soon. Adam, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. I tell you, if we could all achieve just half of the goals Rhoda has undertaken, the world would be a much more balanced place. And I can certainly anticipate a call to country and gifting becoming a much more widespread practice. This conversation was also where I learned that a number seven is another term for a big boomerang, which I think is just delightful. But now, it's time to journey into the valley. It's a gorgeous track from Bellingen duo Sage, who share with Rhoda Roberts a connection to the Woodford Folk Festival as they performed there at the 2019 event. 2019 also saw Sage honoured at the Folk Alliance Australia Youth Awards, and I'm very happy to showcase them to you now. Climb across this broken bridge Wondering how much longer till I fall Gold lies on the bank behind But wealth can never satisfy my soul 
was The Valley, an outstanding song from the latest EP from Sage. And once the dust from the pandemic has settled, I do encourage you to catch them in the flesh wherever you can. And now it's my genuine delight to premiere a reading from best-selling author Deborah Adelaide. 
with 15 books to her name including novels, short story collections, non-fiction and anthology works, Deborah was a much-anticipated festival guest and we're thrilled to bring you this extract from Carry Your Heart, a story from her most recent collection, Zebra. I'm Deborah Adelaide and this is an extract from my story called Carry Your Heart from my collection Zebra. When Edward appeared at the doorway, she was reaching up to replace a thick paperback on the top shelf. In an instant, he took in her long hair under the LED downlight, the long neck, her long arms and legs, saw the whole lean length of her, dressed in black jeans and dove grey shirt, something green knotted around her neck, and his heart, already racing from the quick scramble across the road against the traffic, skipped a beat. Skipped a beat? He caught himself out before the cliché was fully formed. Still eyeing her under the downlight, he put a hand to his chest. Of course his heart had not skipped a beat. His heart was in excellent condition, confirmed at the doctor's only last week. And hearts only skipped beats in the worst kind of stories. So what was it? He realised he was staring and turned to the shelf on the right. Non-fiction. Our staff picks. Sidestepping a man in a bushranger beard and cloth cap, steering a baby in a pram towards the door, he squeezed against a display of hardbacks on sale to let them pass. The pram was black, massive, bearing three inflated wheels with deep treads. It was a panzer of a pram, designed to destroy and vanquish. The father looked grim under the cap and beard, asserting a right to occupy bookshop territory as if Edward, the regular book buyer, the book buying nut, in fact, as his sons always said, were the invader. It had been different when his boys were little. He never considered taking them into a bookshop, let alone ploughing through narrow aisles and busy shoppers in such bulk. The stroller he and Anne had for the boys was a lightweight thing, yellow and blue stripes. Even so, They had avoided shops and cafes. Inner city bars were unthinkable. The inner city unthinkable. A drink in a bar would be good now. A quiet bar where he could read and sip a martini. It was on the cusp of martini season, in Edward's view. Another few weeks and it would be too cold for martinis. It would be red wine and Irish whiskey season. Now, when the afternoon had been warm and the cool of the evening was just laying itself down, it would be perfect. He glanced across at the woman. She was peering through gold-rimmed glasses, which were not even fashionably unfashionable, at two books in her hands, glancing from right to left as if she would buy only one. As he eased out of the wake, left by the father and pram on his way towards travel, He allowed his head to swivel right to take her in again in full. She was so tall. Her hair was long and thick, falling past her shoulders. She looked to be anywhere between 40 and 60. She struck him as a possible martini drinker. Anne had hated martinis. She had only drunk white wine, the fruity kind. 
He would never know if it was a sudden stab of pain or anger at the thought of Anne, or something else, something a poet might have explained for him, but he dropped his hand from the Patrick Lee firmer title he was considering buying, turned away from travel altogether, and walked as directly as he could, stepping around crime and thrillers, and passed another pram to the shelf in front of her. He was so close, he could have tapped her on the shoulder, said something unoriginal like, don't I know you, followed by a laugh and an apology, and then he could have initiated a short chat about the books she was buying, then suggested a drink, possibly. He didn't suppose she drank martinis after all. Standing beside her, he glanced up to check the fat paperback she'd been replacing when he had walked through the door two minutes before, when dark was already settling on the street and throwing into soft relief the yellow warmth of the bookshop's nooks and corners when he first saw her and his heart skipped a beat, or appeared to. The Luminaries. He had heard of it. It had won the booker. He rarely read fiction, so probably wouldn't bother, but he reached up and took it down anyway, trying to watch her without appearing to, hoping his glasses would disguise the effort his eyeballs were making to take her in sideways. Marion stepped away but only slightly, the gesture intended as politeness to allow the man more room. She registered the bulk of him, solid and tall in a black t-shirt, charcoal jeans, sensible shoes, black framed glasses, curly brown hair. He looked like a poet. For a second she felt disorientated, poetry being way down the back of the shop, past children's and drama on the way to the second-hand collection that lined the passage to the back door. Or maybe he was in the wrong section. But poets were entitled to browse recent fiction, surely. In fact, poets probably never looked at the poetry section. They probably found it too depressing. These thoughts presented themselves so engagingly that she involuntarily turned her head to look down the shop towards poetry, as if to check for herself that no poets were there that no one at all was there, and in doing so saw him full in the face, staring at her, the luminaries in hand, his mouth slightly open as if he'd been caught out doing something wrong. She glanced down at the book, then back into his face, his mouth pressed shut. Behind the glasses he had beautiful, almond-shaped green eyes. She registered that his beard needed a trim before looking away again, so as not to appear rude. Feeling too warm, trying to unknot her scarf with one hand, she fumbled with the two books, and, as if some B-grade screenplay now dictated all her movements, the scarf slipped to the floor while she was still considering what to say. He bent and retrieved it, and handed it over. Lovely scarf. Oh, thanks. It was a present. Holding her hair aside, she looped the scarf back around her neck, considering how to return the courtesy. The book, of course, the one he held. Are you buying that? Maybe. It's very long, though. Yes, that's what I thought. Not sure I'd have time to read it. God, I've only just finished War and Peace. Took me two whole months. Was she an idiot? What ridiculous pretentiousness possessed her to mention War and Peace, even if it was true she'd read it recently? More precisely, reread it. 
She had first read it when she was 20 and ignorant, but had assumed that reading the Russians made one literary. Now, aged 50, she realised she should actually read it properly, and the effort had literally strained her wrists. Only when she was towards the end had she realised she should have simply taken a Stanley knife and sliced the volume into four or five sections. That way she could have at least taken it on the bus and into the bath with ease. She could say none of this to him, of course. He was probably thinking she was a total nerd. Then again, they were in a bookshop. The scarf was a present. Not from a lover, he found himself hoping, but a nanosecond later felt grateful that it had provided the perfect excuse for a gesture of chivalry. When he handed it back, he also observed the length of her hands and delicate tapering fingers. No ring, not that he was looking, especially. It was when she held out the books she was still clutching awkwardly, then with her hands free, reached around and scooped her hair out of the way with one and slid the scarf across her neck with the other, that his heart definitely skipped a beat. No mistaking. He felt something deep inside his chest, like a miniature prisoner was trapped there, hammering to get out. Without intending to, he clapped the books to his chest and breathed audibly. Are you okay? Frowning, she took back the books. Yeah, yes, fine. Occasionally I just get this... He patted his chest again, thinking, Heartburn? Yes, he said, but nothing a decent martini can't fix. Thus concludes our second episode of Right Between the Eyes. Our thanks go out to Rhoda Roberts, Deborah Adelaide, and Sage for being part of a truly exceptional lineup. Be sure to check out the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival Facebook page for more news and events, including upcoming episodes of this very podcast. On the next episode, we're welcoming none other than environmental warrior and former leader of the Greens, Bob Brown. But until then... Go make yourself a nice hot drink. Sit down somewhere with a good book and a view. You've earned it. Have I reached a confluence or am I struggling?